welcome to Positively Pro-Life podcast. Positively Pro-Life is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Ramon Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and I have and I have our Legislative Director, Maria Gallagher, to co-host with me today. So welcome, Maria, to the show. It's so great to be with you today, Ramel. You know, life and death, two things that all human beings will, ex- ex- will experience. And you would think that death, a complete cessation of all brain and bodily functions, is easy to define and interpret. But the advancement in medical interventions and technology has created certain challenges in determining the natural end of life. A nonprofit organization called the Uniform Law Commission, or ULC for short, is looking to amend its current definition of brain death, which currently states irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. Now, this is going to be changed to something less finite and vague. This could be a ch- cause for concern, and to further discuss this issue and the implications of such a change is Dr. Edward Furton from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. But now continuing with our Real Alternatives updates every week is Maria. Thank you so much, Remmel. On the evening of August 3rd, after he signed the Commonwealth's budget, Governor Josh Shapiro shockingly sent out a press release stating he was not going to renew the Real Alternatives contract that provides statewide pregnancy and parenting support to women experiencing an unexpected pregnancy. Please take the following three actions to restore the award-winning taxpayer-funded pregnancy and parenting support program that has provided alternatives to abortion to 350,000 women in the Commonwealth the last 27 years. Encourage your Pennsylvania senators and representatives to work to renew the Real Alternatives contract. Number one, call and email your state representatives and especially your state senators. Two, call the pro-life Pennsylvania Senate leadership and Pennsylvania pro-life House leadership. And those numbers are on our website. And three, email the two pro-life PA House Democrats Representative Anita Kulik, and Representative Frank Burns. You can send these messages conveniently online by visiting www.paprolife.org. That's www.paprolife.org. Remmel. Thank you, Maria, for that update. And as we had mentioned before, this is a time for action from all of Pennsylvania to help restore this really great award-winning program in our state budget. So um, go online, go on our website, you will find all of the information under our blog, as well as you have multiple clicks that uh, buttons there that you can click to get your message across. So do that right away. Now, our guest interview is with Dr. Edward J. Furton. He serves as an ethicist and director of publications at the National Catholic Bioethics Center where he directs a staff of four who produced the NCBC's many books and serial publications. Dr. Edward, who also goes by Ted, is the founding editor of an award-winning journal, the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, and the longest-serving editor of Ethics and Medics, 
a monthly bulletin on moral issues in the health and life sciences. Ted, who currently resides in Philadelphia, has been a member of the National Catholic Bioethics Center since 1997, and he subscribes to the natural law theory of ethics. He has written and spoken on many topics, including stem cell research, reproductive technologies, vaccine use, brain death, organ donation, and physician-assisted suicide. So Dr. Ferton, Ted, thanks so, uh, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Remel. Appreciate being here. You know, um, you know, we're always happy to have a member from NCBC, and we've had a few ethicists uh, on our program before, but just as a refresher, could you explain um, the field of bioethics to someone who may be listening to it for the first time? Yeah, bioethics broadly is any uh, moral concern about bodily or mental health. Uh, so as it is used today, it, uh, again, it's very broad. It can involve environmental aspects, justice issues, but it began within uh, the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages with uh, medical ethics and the first questions that were posed to the church by the Catholic faithful about how to approach difficult moral problems while receiving medical treatment. So that was the origin and some of the key principles that are still in use today within Catholic bioethics originated there. One of the most important, the distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means of treatment. Simplify, the ordinary is easy to do and helpful, not too expensive, doesn't cause pain. And the extraordinary is the opposite, difficult to do, unlikely to be helpful, expensive, and perhaps causing significant pain or psychological distress. So it, medical ethics has been around for a long time. As we moved into the modern period, uh, a different philosophical outlook within modernity connected to secularism, took hold of medical ethics and renamed itself bioethics. Uh, and so many of our physicians, for example, are trained in a very different way uh, in a secular setting than they would be in a Catholic setting because uh, there are two different philosophical outlooks that uh, go behind that. But again, generally bioethics, any moral concern about physical or mental health. So it would seem obvious to some, but maybe it isn't so obvious. What is the current definition of death? Well, uh, Maria, before I address that, let me just say something about brain death, because that is the subject of controversy here, and uh, also mentioned something called self-integration. The Catholic Church accepts brain death, or what's called the neurological criteria for determining death, when it is properly applied, and when it refers to whole brain death, nothing left at all. Uh, the controversy surrounds whether the current application of the tests to determine brain death are capturing whole brain death properly considered or they're missing uh, certain elements. So uh, the current uh, definition, which I'll read to you now, 
is um, has two parts. This comes from the Uniform Law Commission, as Remel mentioned, and it has been adopted by all 50 states and the District of Columbia. The commission tries to unify the laws among the 50 states. It's a very good organization. <clears throat> so that's great. And their uh, definition came about in, the, the in 1981, so quite some time ago. So let me just grab that and read that to you. Um, I'm going to say a point one and a point two here. Point one is the cardiovascular standard, heartbeat and breathing. And point two is going to be the brain death. There's actually two definitions of death. Current, here's the current uniform determination of death language. An individual who has sustained either one irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions, or two, irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, is dead. A determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. That's the whole definition. Now, John Paul II, in an address in the year 2000, August of 2000, to a group of transplant specialists said, this neurological standard, number two in this listing here, uh, seems, he left some wiggle room, seems compatible with a sound Christian anthropology. And he also said, Catholics are free to accept this standard for themselves and for their loved ones. So that's the current definition, and Catholics are happy with it, and I think pro-life people should generally be happy with it as well. Yes, and uh, from my understanding, what is being proposed is for the second part, which is the brain death. That's where the definition is going to be changed or is being proposed to be changed. So could you um, share what is that proposition right now? Well, actually, they make a small change to the first one as well, which is problematic, but we don't need to talk about that today. But I'll read the whole thing. Here's the possible alternative. An individual who has sustained either one permanent, instead of irreversible, permanent cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions, or two, permanent coma, cessation of spontaneous respiratory functions and loss of brainstem reflexes is dead. And then again, a, a determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. So this number two gets turned around in a couple of different ways. It's quite different and more complex. So, so what is the danger of this proposition? The, the problem is that the, uh, well, the, the definition as originally given, the first one I read to you, was followed by a statement by the American, uh, let's see here, American Academy of Neurology. They developed some guidelines for determining brain death. And unfortunately, those guidelines were not adequate. And we've been living with them ever since. So what the proposed language seeks to do is say, we're okay with the inadequate 
guide guidelines. So the, we want to change the definition so it fits our inadequate protocols. In effect, what's happening is individuals with partial brain death are going to be included in the category of brain dead individuals. Now, I mentioned the word self-integration earlier. The Catholic Church, uh, disagreeing with contemporary scientific view that we're just material beings and have no spiritual souls, holds that the soul integrates the body. Self-integration is the mark of the presence of the soul in the body. So when that happens at the beginning of life and when it disappears at the end of life, we can say that the soul has departed. There is a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which current clinical guidelines don't test for. And it's always been known to have some random firing of you know, brain cells. And it was thought, well, that's just a random you know, incidence. It's not really that significant. But it's become clear that there are two classes of individuals, those who are totally brain dead and are truly dead, and those who continue to have this firing within the hypothalamus. So the proposed language is to, well, we'll just uh, modify the definition of death so we don't have to bother with new testing or uh, trying to sort out the protocol and make it better. It's just easier to do it this way. We'll get more organs, et cetera. That's the, that's the key problem. The uh, hypothalamus governs endocrine function. So there was a case of a woman in New Jersey, Jahai McMath. She had this endocrine, endocrine function in her and she was declared brain dead. Family refused the diagnosis. They moved to New Jersey because there's a religious exemption law there. And she lived for another four and a half years and you know, was able to communicate in some very primitive ways, but still communicate. So that's the nub of the issue. So this new definition, what does it mean for someone, let's say someone like me who comes into the hospital um, because of some med either a medical condition or, or an accident, and I have limited brain activity, or like you mentioned, like once a few sparks in in the brain still. Um, but I am seeking medical intervention and treatment. What do you what do you, what is going to happen in a situation like that if the definition changes? Well, the possibility of a, of a particular person being given a brain death diagnosis is fairly small. These are already small cases to begin with. Uh, so it's not a great worry about receiving medical care, but people who do suffer traumatic head injuries, they their families should be, well, aware of this problem. I doubt that they are. It's a pretty technical problem. And it's come to light mainly today because of this effort by some to revise the current definition of brain death. So most people would not even have heard of this problem with the clinical guidelines if this whole issue hadn't come up. Still, there are certain things you can do. You can tell the medical staff that as a family looking after someone who has received this diagnosis, 
that you want to receive data on the endocrine function. Is this total brain death, the entire brain, or is there still some minimal flickering of this area, which indicates self-integration, the presence of the soul still integrating the body? Uh, then if that's the case, you, know, you, you won't accept a brain death diagnosis. The problem is many states do accept brain death diagnoses, but they, in, the physicians use defective protocol. So you could be in a, a situation where there is endocrine function and the physician still says, sorry, it's brain death in this state. We're just going to remove the ventilator, et cetera. But then I think your best course is to say, you could try to flee to another state. That was pretty remarkable. The family for Jahai McMath doing that, fleeing to New Jersey. But um, you could say, okay, my daughter, my son was going to be an organ donor, but he's not going to be an organ donor now. We will not have organ donation from my son or daughter because he's not been prior, properly diagnosed as, as dead. And perhaps that would even convince them not to proceed because you know, one of the reasons why they don't want to look too closely at this is that they, they do, uh, you know, brain death patients are great organ donors. Um, and they want, they, you know, naturally it's not a bad attitude, but they want to gain organs for people to help them live, but they can't cut corners. And the tragic thing is in these cases, these patients are actually still alive. So, I mean, if you're going to be taking organs from them, you know, that's technically vivisection, it's called. So that's what I would recommend, that um, you at least refuse organ donation. You express your concern over the endocrine function. Perhaps they can reassure you on that point. Perhaps they'll say, you don't deserve to know that, then you should be very worried. But uh, you have to be cautious. This situation open up a door for abuse. I mean, it is is organ donation a big business in our country? Well, it is, and unfortunately, it has been somewhat corrupted by um, this strong desire to harvest as many organs as possible. There is, you know, people deserve to be paid for their work. You can't have doctors, you know, taking organs from patients that are donated, properly donated, and not being paid for it. So it is, there is a, a monetary aspect to this, which is why the standards for determining death have to be so rigorous, because there's always a temptation to cut corners, to rush things, and shorten a person's life in order to gain the, the, the organs. There's also the larger general problems in our society of you know, kind of a, a denial of objective reality. People don't think that human life is that valuable anymore. And they dismiss it as you know, if you're poor and powerless, disabled, you don't have a life that's worth preserving or spending money on. People in comatose states, if you pull the plug, you save a lot of money. I mean, there's, there's a lot of this as well. And then a general utilitarian attitude towards, towards the organs themselves, not recognizing them as belonging to the body, which is a, you know, a sacred 
vessel, you know, temple of the Holy Spirit, and uh, deserve to be treated with respect. So, yeah, the whole field is is um, not doing as well as it did in the earlier, more idealistic days back several decades ago. It's unfortunate. Do you think that um, you just um, mentioned that, you know, brain dead people are really good organ donors, uh, mm -hmm. can be. And so um, do you think that, you know, with an era where we have live transplants of heart and, and I guess there are um, studies about the brain and, and different organs that are very vital to survival, um, do you think that that is going to, I mean, for the advancement of science, uh, something like this would be helpful, but why would it be, would it be right or wrong? Well, um, of course, the first rule is the patient must be deceased before any organs can be taken. Although live organ donation is permitted when there's paired organs. So if uh, someone wants to give a kidney, you've got two kidneys and you can give one generally safely if you meet the medical criteria. But the sort of thing you're talking about, Ramel, would be, uh, well, obviously you can't transplant a heart while a person's still alive, right? Because that would kill the person. There are some strange protocols that are being proposed, which we at the NCDC strongly oppose, that would, for a person who is not brain dead, they would they would nonetheless shut off blood vessels to the brain, cause the death of the brain, keep the heart beating, and then remove it from the body for transplant. Now, that's clearly killing the patient. This points to another problem with the UDDA. There's two definitions of death. And that's just not good. There should be a single definition of death because in the case I'm speaking about now, they declare the person dead by the neurological criteria, the brain death criteria, and they can take a living heart. I mean, the heart is still beating. So that's a really strange situation there. And down the line, I don't know, personally, I think it's more likely that the Brain death criteria will prove to be the true criteria for death because it won't be long before we have people who, you know, we already have artificial hearts. And there's also a machine called ECMO that moves blood, the entire blood in and out of your body, despite the fact that your heart's not working. So this person who has a non-functioning heart is relying completely on a machine to oxygenate all of his blood. He is dead by the circulatory criteria. His heart is gone. And yet he's clearly still alive. Now you couldn't do that with the brain function. If brain function fails, it's not coming back. But that's speculative. We, who knows what science will reveal as we move forward. Is there a link between changing the definition of death and the euthanasia movement? Maria, I don't think very much. No, I think that's an independent movement. Uh, they're going to continue go, going on regardless. I mean, perhaps, um, but I'd have to think that through. It's a good question. There 
our proposals to for, for people to harvest organs from those who have been euthanized, which, you know, you again, you can't kill somebody for their organs, so that should not be done. So there is that connection. But um, the whole physician-assisted suicide euthanasia movement, which is, of course, powerful and strong and constantly trying to enact this into law, uh, I think is going to continue on regardless of what uh, the definition of death is. Yeah, there's 10 states so far who have accepted physician-assisted suicide. None have uh, allowed euthanasia as of yet, which of course is the killing of another person as opposed to physician-assisted suicide where a doctor gives you a pill where you kill yourself. So um, to close out, is there anything that the average person can do uh, if this goes into effect? Now, has it, I mean, first question is, uh, how likely is, is the definition going to change? Because now it is proposed, um, but what, if, do, you, do you think it is likely that this will be become part of the law? And what can we do? Uh, you touched briefly on it, but uh, is there something more we can do to maybe oppose this law? Well, um, there is a little, there's little likelihood that this will be accepted, in my opinion, given the level of reaction that has occurred. The, the Uniform Law Commission has received a great many uh, documents, uh, statements in opposition. And from what I've heard, now predictions are always dicey, but they are, I think, going to hold off on making any changes. It would be certainly controversial. Um, but for, for a matter like this, the Uniform Law Commission doesn't receive materials from persons. They want uh, testimonials and statements from organizations only. So we were able to participate in this uh, through a connection we have to the Uniform Law Commission. Um, most people, most uh, citizens wouldn't be able to do so. So I would go back to simply saying that you know, when it comes to if you get a diagnosis of, of brain death for a family member, you know, make sure it's done rigorously. And if you don't believe it has been, refuse organ donation. Uh, just refuse to do it. Thank you so much, Dr. Ted Ferdin of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. We have been so grateful to have you on the program today, Positively Pro-Life. Thank you, Maria and Remo. Pleasure being here. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is the largest single-issue pro-life organization in the Keystone State, with more than 40 local county-based chapters. We shine a spotlight on the most vulnerable individuals from the very dawn of life to the twilight of life. Thank you for joining us for the program today. It wouldn't be the same without you. We are grateful for your continuing support and encouragement. And remember, there is always a reason to choose life.